Okay, we're going to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship, and he sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon the stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprang up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 18, and then I'll back up, because this is where Jesus actually explains this parable. He says, Hear you therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches the way that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, and the same is he that hears the word and anon with joy receives it, it has not root in himself but endures for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he that receives seed unto the good ground is he that hears the word, understands it, which also, hears, which also bears fruit and brings forth some a hundred, some sixty, and some 30. So Jesus is very kind to us in that first parable and says, I'm going to tell you what this means. First and foremost, I would tell you about this parable to take it at face value. Don't try to build around it. Don't try to add to it. Don't try to take away from it. It's deep and it's profound understanding, as Jesus will explain, that he only uses parables to teach things that are so hard, so deep, so difficult that he needs to bring in some kind of illustration so that people who are being introduced to these things for the first time can actually understand them. I'm going to read something to you in just a minute, but we fail to understand quite comprehensively that everything that Jesus did was revolutionary. They had never seen, they had never heard, they had never witnessed what Jesus was bringing them. We can't quite process this because we gauge this with Jesus as being, even for the Pharisees, they had a history. They had the oracles of God. They had the Old Testament. They had the law of Moses. They had the prophets. So for Jesus to come onto the scene and begin to teach the things that he taught, preach what he preached, he was really only moving one small step from what they had previously known to the truth that they were now hearing. I want to tell you that is absolutely untrue. This stuff was so radically different that they had no mental process to pull from to try to grasp it. And this is one of those reasons why I will tell you tonight that denominations have done so much damage. Not a popular statement. 
especially when you're standing in a church with such denominational affiliation. But denominations have done extreme damage in our understanding of who God is and his relationship with us. Because every denomination, no matter which one you're talking to, has drawn a boundary, put parentheses around things and says, this is what I believe. Leaving very little room for the revolutionary nature of God. What had the Pharisees done? The Pharisees, exactly, they had drawn parentheses and says, this is what we believe, and now here's Jesus coming, teaching, and preaching outside of the parentheses, and they can't accept it. They've drawn the lines and says, he must be wrong. Well, I want to tell you over the course of the last 20 years, I am preaching many things, experiencing many things, that 20 years ago I was standing and preaching and had concluded were absolutely wrong. And what God did, he asked me about 25 years ago, almost 30 years ago now, to kick out those ends, to get rid of the parentheses around what Baptists believe, and let him teach me what Christians believe. What Christians need to know about who God is and who he made us to be. And I want to tell you, it's not, it's not easy letting those parentheses go because that's defined us for so long. Every one of those things that have been brought into us from our childhood. Every one of those things brought in from how we were socialized, what was acceptable in our families, how we were taken to church, what we were taught about God. Every one of those things creates those boundaries. And it, it wasn't just denomination. Cultural things around us taught, taught them as well. I'll give you an example. One of the saddest, I think, things that has ever been taught from the Bible is that unequally yoked, was ever taught that that was because of race. But that was a very common and prevalent teaching, that unequally yoked was two races, people of different colored skin, actually being married. That was the most common teaching of unequally yoked. Unequally yoked means that a spiritual person, one who's been quickened in the spirit, is in relationship with someone who is a soulish person, who is not saved. That's unequally yoked a believer and a non-believer. Well, and, and so what happens in us, what happens to us, if we stay determined along that line? I could have believed that in my childhood, could believe in my spiritual childhood, but for me to refuse to grow, refuse to accept, refuse to expand and let God teach me. Danny and Amy were kind and gracious enough to take us to Casting Crowns concert. I'm sitting there listening to this music. Of course, the, it helps me so much because the words are up there because the stories are unfolding through the music. But also to learn, you know, one of the most amazing things was I didn't know every member of, of the group Casting Crowns from Sunday to Wednesday is either a Sunday school teacher. Mark Hall is a the, is the youth pastor of their church. So Sunday to Wednesday, they're in their church ministering to kids and to families. And they do this on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday back to minister at home again on Sunday morning. And he said, every song we, we write is coming out of a story of some child or some family or some lesson that I just got through teaching. It adds so much depth. But as they were singing, and I, I had my phone out because I was taking notes because God was bringing revelation in those moments and I'm seeing things and excited about things that I'd never seen before. If you'll ever allow God to just move those parentheses away and just take them away, he will teach you endless and boundless things. 
you marvel all the time at what you're learning today that you had never seen before. And I have over the last few weeks, and actually about a year, been so astounded at how the Lord keeps teaching me brand new things. And I get as excited about them as I did 20 years ago or 30 years ago when I was learning new things back then. But it took a willingness on my part years ago to recognize that God had so much to teach me beyond what I knew as Baptist. This statement came out of a book called Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis, just a brilliant man, an atheist, trying to disprove God. And when he started trying, he suddenly found a tremendous faith in someone that he couldn't explain. But this book is called Grief Observed. He does as he always does. It's, you got to ponder this. You got to think about it. But this is a quote that Jan read to me, and I asked her, I said, I, want to, I need to get that. He says, to me, however, their danger is more obvious. Images of the holy easily become holy images, which is an idol. Let me say that again. Images of the holy easily become holy, holy images. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. My view of God has got to be shattered time after time. My view is constantly changing of someone who's never changes. But I can see more. And because I see more, my image of him is shattered. And if we ever think we have him, then we're in real danger. It was just such brilliantly said, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. Absolutely. That's the way he teaches us. That's what he expands. That's the way he becomes the God that he is. Because I don't care how big I make him, he's bigger. I don't care what I have figured out, there's more. And if we ever don't let him break those ideas of himself, we'll think we strangely have him figured out. It says he's, he is the great iconoclast, the great destroyer of any icon that we could make or image that we could make of it. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. What does that mean? The incarnation is the supreme example. Who would have ever imagined, including Satan, that God's plan to redeem the world was for God to become a baby. Who would have ever imagined, could have ever contemplated a God who would say, I'm going to become a child who can't talk, a child who can't walk, who can't express himself, but that who would 33 years later give himself to die for sin, to become sin. For God to come up with this plan, because what was the uniqueness of Jesus that was different than any other man ever born? Why did it take Jesus? Because Jesus was the only human man ever born alive. If I'm going to offer a sacrifice for death, what do I have to offer? Life. So why couldn't he offer me? Because I was born dead. You were born dead. What does the woman provide in the forming of a child? You biology majors? A seed. The man provides the sperm. 
Which of those two carries the death? The man. So why could Mary not have been impregnated by a man? Because that child would have been born dead. Jesus had to be born alive so that he could be offered as the sacrifice, the payment for death. What an odd plan. How strange the plan that would ever have set this in motion. He concludes and he says the incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. What had they thought the Messiah was going to be? What had the Jews concluded that the, who the Messiah would be? A king, a majestic on a horse, coming to lead them, coming to rule, coming to vanquish every enemy. And what did he do? He broke every idea that they had coming as a baby. And it just stumped them. What happened when he gave us the Holy Spirit? It just stumped us. Didn't see that plan coming. Even if we could imagine that he's going to come as a baby and send Jesus to die for us, to be born, to die, and to be resurrected, we might have somehow comprehended that plan, but we never would have comprehended the great mystery that he reveals in Colossians chapter 1 when he says, this is the mystery that I spoke to you about from the foundation of the earth, that I'm going to put Christ in you. Totally revolutionary. Jesus was not teaching them vacation Bible school lessons in these simple stories. He was teaching them the most profound things, knowing they couldn't get it. And that's why he comes back in this, if you go back with me to verse 10, he gives them this explanation in between. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it's not given. Now to them, I believe, he's speaking clearly of the Pharisees, of anyone, actually, who didn't have ears to hear. I'll hold that thought for just a second until I get a little further down. Verse 12, For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him that shall be taken away, even that which he has. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not. And hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear, and you shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Please notice in this explanation what Jesus does not say. This is deeply profound in his explanation here. Because Jesus never says, let he who has a heart feel. Let him who has a mind think. He makes no appeal to my soul to understand him. He makes no appeal to me physically, mentally, or emotionally to gain an understanding of him. 
If I had my chart in here and I can draw it in the air, but you would, you would see again if I drew these lines and put body down here, part of how we're made up, the physical body, the daily activity of our physical body is to sense and is to tactile feeling. The daily activity of our soul, our mind and our emotions is to think and feel. But the daily activity of our spirit is to watch and to listen. So what's Jesus appealing to here? If he's saying, let he who has ears to hear, he's not talking just about these. He's talking about our spiritual ears because he says, you're not going to know me if you can't hear from me. You'll never understand me by feelings because that's too much of a roller coaster. The Ons family, they're going to have a hard time understanding God if they're going to trust feelings and thoughts today because their world just got rocked. We perceive, we understand God, not because of how we feel. That's why we end up in the messes that we're in, trying to process life by feeling, trying to process life by thought. And Jesus is saying, anyone, everywhere, and he's pointing here to the Jews, talking of these people, to the Pharisees who refuse to hear, who refuse to listen. But I want to tell you, he's addressing exactly the same group today who have determined to shut their ears, to cover their eyes and say, I will not hear you. I know what I want to know. I'm going to stay where, I'm, where I am. I will not hear you. And Jesus is, I mean, he says, makes it very clear. I, you know, in about verse 15, for this people's heart is wax gross and their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes have been closed, lest any time they should see with their eyes hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I'd heal them. He makes it very clear that if you're going to know him spiritually, now that's a revolutionary truth that he is not going to change. He's not going to back away from that reality. He loves blessing us in our soul. He loves giving us those things in our life from music and testimonies and witness and kindness of others. He loves blessing us in ways that we could feel. He loves giving us those things that we can understand mentally and receive emotionally because he made us 100% to be functioning in the spirit, in the soul, and in the body, and he loves to bless us in that alignment. He's not all just about the spirit. He loves blessing us in our soul. He loves blessing us in our body. But if we're going to discover him, it's going to be in the spirit. What's the most obvious reality of that? Our salvation. It had to come through the spirit because there's no other way. Who would, who would have convinced us that sin would lead to death? Holy Spirit. Who would teach us that Jesus is the Savior? The Holy Spirit. Who would bring us before the throne of God with our request? Lord, save me. The Holy Spirit. It's the most evident reality for any of us that the Holy Spirit is the only means by which these things come. Didn't happen without him. I mean, that's even what the scripture says. When Jesus was fixing to go away, who did he say he was going to send? He said, I'm going to send the spirit of truth who will lead you into all truth. That's a pretty clear statement. If we're going to know truth, who's going to have to give it to us? Holy Spirit. I didn't come up with that plan. That's one I can't alter. Let's look quickly at these Next parables. 
Now jumping to verse 24. I want to cover a couple of these uh, tonight and move on a little bit more. Again, deeply profound in what he's teaching. Verse 24, another parable put he forth unto the kingdom, unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while the man slept, his enemies came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou sow good seed in the field? From whence then has the tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. In the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. I just want to say one thing about this. This has been expanded on and taught many times. I just want to say one thing about it. Again, we understand that the, the sower is Jesus. He's sowing truth. I had this conversation today, and it was just kind of interesting how this conversation unfolded. Because I got this mental picture of myself. We all know well what it looks like out here, if we all have good enough memories. What it looks like to see the sandstorm coming right ahead of the rain. That the clouds that are bringing the rain, the wind off the front of them, because the land is still dry, will create this rolling cloud. I live in this edge between the rain and the rolling sand. Because, and the best way I can describe this, so many things that I used to believe I had so settled in my heart, things that I would stand and preach on, things that I would stand and say, this is absolutely true, this is absolutely the way it is. I don't have near as many of those firm lines because the Lord has shown me that he creates a stirring in me, in front of me, to unsettle the things that I once knew so that he can bring truth after it. There's no turmoil in me up here in front of me. The rain won't come. The truth won't come. If I'm busy saying no, I'm fighting this unsettled part in front of me, which I did for years, just saying, no, that's not what Baptists believe. So I would, there would be no stirring. There was no movement either, but there would be no stirring. But it's because of that stirring, it's that wind. It's not hard to picture the Holy Spirit creating that wind, that unsettling in me so that I can come to truth that I know is true. I could stand here and give you a list of 10 or 15 things that 20 years ago I was preaching and teaching that I will not preach and teach anymore because the Lord has not taught me that that was wrong. But he's taken me so far beyond that truth. For example, I'll give you one. You won't have to back up very far. I'm standing on this line that says you don't add anything to salvation but belief because all it takes to be saved is believing. So because I drew that line, I almost dismissed baptism. I made it insignificant in the story because belief was the total picture. I also don't believe... Baptism is necessary for salvation. So it's like, okay, Randy, you've just, somewhere you've got to pick a side. No, I actually didn't have to pick a side. Because out of the stirring, out of the turmoil, God was then able to bring the relevant truth that says, yes, you're saved by belief, but I will never separate your belief from the authority that I'm going to give you in baptism. No more than he would ever separate his death from his resurrection. His death 
brought us redemption. That's how he paid for us. His resurrection brought us life. They did two very distinct and separate things that you would never take apart. Our salvation by belief and our baptism are exactly the same way, do two very different things, but they will never be taken apart. I want to tell you, there was a lot of sand blowing out in front of me for that reality to ever come that allowed me and others to be baptized for the first time receiving authority in baptism that I'd never received when I was eight years old when I was baptized. Those are the things we learn again. Jesus is telling us in this, we can't be alarmed at the things that are growing up around us. I can't be alarmed that you're on a journey that's taking you in a place that I may at this point strongly disagree with. I mean, I can't be alarmed that your heart, your mind, your Christian experience is taking you something that I would say is totally off track. I have no responsibility to go to you and pull what I think is a tear out of the the wheat. Because I can't tell the difference. I may think I can, but I can't tell the difference. Why would Jesus say, no, wait to the end and let me do it? Because I can tell you today, I can't tell the difference. Yeah, there are things that the Holy Spirit has made so clear and so absolute that I can recognize if somebody says that Jesus is not the Son of God, I have enough sense to pull that one out. But he doesn't even give me that responsibility. He says, if you'll leave them alone, I'll pull them out. What would that remove? It would remove my need to judge you, to criticize you, to assess what you believe versus what I believe. Because I can let both grow and let them come to harvest and the good will come to harvest and those things that aren't, he will pull out. I don't have to fully agree with what you're believing and what you're teaching and where your heart is going. But I have no right to criticize it because God, he reserves that right for himself. I'll pull it out. At the appropriate time, you don't need to because what's going to happen if you start trying to pull the tares out now, you're going to disrupt so much. What happens when we begin to criticize and try to pull the tears out now? It tears at a lot of good stuff. We do so much damage. There's so much destruction when we try to do what only God's qualified to do. Let me go to the next one right quick. I'll get one more. It'll be verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto him, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took. He sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's the greatest among herbs. And it became a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now this is one that is odd. Again, he's talking about kingdom life. He's, talking, he's not talking to lost people. He's talking about what's going to happen in the building of a kingdom, in the building of his kingdom. So notice something about this. If you had a mustard seed, which he says is the least of, all seeds, and you put it in the ground, what should you expect to grow up out of that? A mustard plant. And he says it right there. It's the greatest among herbs. So it's the least of seeds, but when it's grown, it's the greatest among the herbs. Now, what were herbs used for? For healing. So you begin to recognize what happened when this mustard seed became a tree. It was confusion, absolutely. This was an unnatural, an ungodly act. He's telling us something. 
powerful in this one. You and I, forming his body, forming his kingdom, is designed in this life to be a healing balm made from the herb of that tree. We were designed to be an, an ointment. We were designed by the touch of our hands, by the words from our mouth, the expression of our heart. We were designed in this world, in this season, to be a healing bomb. How did we lose it? What happened to us? Why is the church not the healing bomb? What's happened to the gentleness of God? What's happened to the kindness, the grace, the love of God among Christian people? Judgment? I would add in, I would add in there Fox News. I listen to Fox News. We have accepted in the name of information division that news creates. Because we were designed to be a healing bomb, nurturing, Jesus dealt with things. But you know, he, he never took on the national news. He didn't take on national events. He wouldn't even take on an argument between two brothers over, over some property. He did take on religion. He did take on the callousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, I've got, I've got relatives. I've shared this a little bit this with you, but I've got relatives that Fox News is gospel and the hateful things they say about Christian people is unbelievable. Where did that go? It's in that verse. What happens when an herb becomes a tree, an unnatural act? What do trees generally picture? What does the fig tree picture in the scripture? We looked at this a few weeks ago. Who's the fig tree? Israel. A nation. Trees symbolically picture nations. So what's he describing here? He's describing what happened when Christianity became a nation and took on an agenda and causes of its own. Became a political force with things that we push and division we create and stands that we make. He's describing it right here. So what happens when we take on this national role? Who are these birds? We've seen them already once in these parables. What were they doing? Stealing seed. If Jesus wasn't going to take on what the Roman government was doing that was wrong, if, if Jesus wouldn't take on these causes, why don't we find that in there? Why don't we find his commentary on what the Roman government was doing that in his day that was as big a news as what's happening around our world today? I guarantee you, the Roman news was as prevalent and awful as what we see happening in the world today. Why don't, why don't we read Jesus' commentary on it? Why wouldn't he take up the issue between two brothers when one of them said, would you make my brother give me what I deserve? Because the government is not yet on his shoulders. That is coming next. He will someday step into that government role. He will someday be that decision maker. He will someday be that leader. But today, he came to create within the church that we would be a healing bomb and that by our hands we would touch the world and they would be saved. They would be rescued. 
they would know the love, the kindness, the grace, the goodness, the passion of Jesus and how he loved us and the plan of God. I don't think we should bury our heads in the sand and ignore what's going on around us. But I think every one of us have to be careful when we find ourselves speaking hatred toward our Christian brothers and sisters because of some worldly event, some political issue that we truly differ on. But boy, when it turns into that venom that comes out of our mouth, we need to come back to this verse and say, my goodness, God, what happened to me? Because I want my life to be healing. I want it to be that herb that is rubbed on that when somebody sees it, they know, they recognize the difference, that this didn't come from anywhere. He says very clearly, it became a tree. Religion takes on an agenda and begins to push. I'd even take on one of the most significant ones close to my heart. I think as individuals, we have a responsibility to speak and to teach and to talk strongly about the issues of abortion. But I want to tell you, when the church took that one on, instead of trying to touch these women's lives and change people because we are loving them and encouraging them and reaching them before they ever get to the point of, of, those, of those pregnancies and all the things that God had designed for us to do and who he asked us to be, then afterward we take on this political position and we make this the calling card of the Christian faith and, boy, immediately there's such division. But it sounds like it's such a worthy cause. It's like this is life and death. If we're not going to stand up against it, who is going to stand up against it? Well, I believe individually I have a tremendous responsibility to stand up against it. But I also believe as a church I have a responsibility to love these women long before and to teach them and to train them and to reach out to them and let the church become this powerful place of transformation and healing that actually begins to draw people again instead of repel them. I can get on this soapbox and it can get really tall real quick, so I'll be careful. Before becoming pastor here, I went to a lot of churches. When I wasn't preaching, I was somewhere. And I was always amazed that there were no broken-hearted people in those churches, people with broken lives. Where were those people who didn't smell too good? The ones whose hands were out because they were in need. They weren't there. I guarantee they weren't there. And you realize the church was no longer for them. It was designed for Christian people to come week after week, hear the same things, and be comfortable in what they believed. And again, my soapbox can get really tall. Who needs the healing balm? Those who are sick. Who needs the balm of salvation? Those who are lost. Who needs that balm of deliverance? Those whose lives have been stolen. If we're not good for them, we're not good for much. We may never be large. We may never be a big church, and I don't care. I do hope that we will always remain a church that recognizes that we're here for every person that the world has thrown away, every person the world has said no to. I hope they can walk through these doors and know that there's someone here to touch them with the healing hand of God, to love them, to hold them, to support them, to encourage them. I hope that will always be true. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word tonight, for the truth that you bring us, the power, Lord, of, of such amazing parables. I just pray, Lord, that you would dismiss us with the understanding of who we're designed to be, a healing people, touching, loving, holding, supporting, giving, 
bringing salvation. May it never leave our hearts. May it be ever fresh in our spirit as you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.